Did you know that in the late 1600s, a small group of ordinary people rose up against the establishment and changed society forever? The world called them pirates, but these pirates didn't just break the rules, they rewrote them. They didn't just reject society, they reinvented it. Pirate crews created equal pay, equal say, workplace compensation and even same-sex marriage. In the face of industrial-scale disruption, global conflict and an uncertain future, the pirates of the golden age weren't quite the villains that Disney would have you believe. Welcome to our Be More Pirate podcast. I'm Alex Barker. And I'm Sam Conniff. In 2018, my first book, Be More Pirate, was published by Penguin Random House. After 20 years working with young creatives, the book was an outlet for my frustrations and a quest for some new role models who could capture the spirit of rebellion I knew we so desperately need to tackle the big challenges ahead. And I found it in Pirates. The book then became something far bigger than I ever expected. Be More Pirate is now a global movement of people and organisations taking a stand to update the rules, systems and business models that are no longer fit for purpose. And I went from being Sam's right-hand pirate to leading this community and writing a second book to tell their story. So if you, like so many in our crew, find yourself dissatisfied with the status quo, then this podcast is here to give you permission to do things differently. We'll be interviewing some of the best pirates out there people who really live their values and are willing to stick their head above the parapet for the greater good. We'll tackle some uncomfortable conversation topics and delve into what it really takes to break and rewrite the rules today. I'm very excited that today we're interviewing the impressive Jackie Fast, an award-winning entrepreneur and venture capitalist who continually breaks all the rules of business. Jackie started her first company, Slingshot Sponsorship, in her early 20s and went on to work with clients like Formula One, Red Bull and the Rolling Stones. She was recognised for working so outside the usual boxes that the Great British Entrepreneur Awards actually gave her an entirely new category, Media Disruptor of the Year. She has worked with Richard Branson on the infamous Necker Island. She owns a luxury ice wine company, Rebel Pie, and was a contestant on The Apprentice UK. And she's the author of two books, the most recent entitled Rule Breaker, Rebellious Leadership for the Future of Work. And if that's not enough, she's just launched a brand new venture, Sandbox Studios, which we'll talk a little bit about later. And she's recently become a mother. In sum, I don't think we have ever interviewed anyone who gets more shit done than Jackie. So really great to have her on today. We would usually start by asking a guest probably to give a bit of background on their experience and how they got to where they got to, but you've done so much, I wouldn't even know where to start. <laughs> but I think it would be really interesting to yeah hear a bit more about why you define yourself as a rebellious leader in business and why you're a rule breaker. I thought it was really interesting, the point that you make quite early on in your book around the sort of rule you're breaking about not having a mentor, not taking advice from the kind of experts in your industry, but just sort of feeling your own way through. And then that in itself allowing you to work in completely unrestricted ways. I'd love to hear a bit more about how you have become that rebellious leader. So I'm kind of an accidental rule breaker, I would say. I talk about this in my book, but I would never have really called myself like a black sheep or an outside the box thinker. It's not how I ever identified myself, but I ended up 
taking a backpack and going to Europe. And I'm from a very small suburb in Canada. Um, my understanding of like life, the world, people was really like isolated to a small suburb. You know, my family, the, the kids I went to school with. And um, I literally decided I wasn't sure what I wanted to do with my life. And I bought the cheapest ticket to an English speaking country I could find. And legit, that, that was the criteria. It happened to be London and I had never been farther than Disneyland. I got on a plane, 18 years old, packed a backpack and my whole plan was I was going to travel Europe and I had not very much money and found very quickly that currency conversion like kills you, especially when you're younger and you're broke. And so somebody recommended that, um, or somebody told me that if you worked at a pub, you could live at that pub. And so I ended up landing in uh, the Selkirk pub in the back of a shed in Tooting Broadway in February, might I add, with no heat. And I kind of just arrived and it was horrible and wonderful all at the same time. But I didn't really have much of a choice. And then from there, I just kind of opened up to this whole new world. And it was so exciting. And all I wanted to do was figure out how I could stay. And so it kind of led me on a journey. I got a job in sponsorship, never done sponsorship, but it came with a visa. And if that person would have told me that I could have a job being a janitor with a visa, I would have been a janitor. And maybe we would be talking about a totally different thing on our podcast. But I kind of did sponsorship, really fell into that, had no idea what I was doing, just kind of, again, paved my own path, came up with my own rules about how I think one should go and get sponsors and what should be important. And that ethos, which really has been fundamental and the string of everything that I do is focuses on collaboration and how to drive value from differing partners with differing objectives. I then launched my own business and had, again, like, you know, it's just from the place that I was in. I um, I had no friends, no family, very little network in London, and I didn't really have much to go on. I knew I needed a website and I had no clients and I was just spending my days like not doing anything. So I started writing and blogging about my thoughts. And as I was writing, my thoughts evolved and, you know, my business took off. I ended up working with everybody from Prince to the Rolling Stones, to John, to Elliot's, to Shell. And that was the springboard really to where I'm at now. It's an incredible lineup of events and experience. There are so many places in that where there's opportunities to kind of give up or feel overwhelmed or this is more difficult than it seems to be. When you list out like that, it can sound really impressive and to some people I'm sure would almost sound inspiring and to others would sound daunting. So can we just punctuate that impressive story with moments of like the doubt when it nearly went wrong? Because I think that's the real experience, isn't it? And the really interesting bit is what were the big speed bumps that nearly knocked you over and, and how you got back up again? The truth of the matter is the whole thing. Like I still don't feel like... I have been successful. So I can count hundreds of times when I was on the floor crying. But the truth of the matter is I didn't really have a choice. So when I left Canada, you know, I had never planned on staying. And when I arrived, I just felt within me like it was so ambitious and the people were so inspiring. And I was so excited to be in London. And I was so happy to be there. I would have done anything. I would have done anything. And so when I arrived and I was living in the back of a shed and there was no heat and I was pulling pints, I, of course, would have loved to come home. The truth of the matter is I didn't have very much money to buy a flight. And I think it would have been super embarrassing to like kind of go with my tail between my legs. So there was obviously the fear of failure that kind of pushed me 
on to getting a job. I then kind of really liked my job. And the reason I left my job and started a business is I applied to be the commercial director. And I was not even overlooked. I was point blank told to my face that I was not old enough. I had no experience. And they hired a man who was probably the worst person I've ever worked with in my entire life, even though I was bringing in half the revenue. And that was a massive kick in the teeth and I didn't know what to do. And so I applied for every sponsorship job that I could and nobody would even interview me. I couldn't even get a coffee with anybody. That should have been it. I should have caught a plane and went home, but I didn't have any other experience. So I was in the UK. I had one job. I only had one job in the UK and that was sponsorship. I couldn't do anything else. And so I set up my business because I couldn't get a job in sponsorship. Nobody would interview me. I didn't have a choice. I loved London so much. And so I kind of resigned that I would try to make enough money to pay rent. And that period was horrible because I didn't get a client for nine months and I almost lost all my money. And then I got a client and then that was like, you know, good. And so I've pushed it down to the wire every single time. I've pushed it to having no money in my bank account. Like I pushed it as far as I can possibly go. And I think the whole way through, I am almost always failing. And I think for me personally, that's when I do my best work. I have moved from London, everything I know, where work is really easy, where my life is very easy, where I have a house and I have uprooted my family. I have a one-year-old child. We have moved to West Hollywood. I've been here three times. One of those was Disneyland. Um, So I've come to LA. I don't know anybody And I'm starting it again because I feel like going back to rule breaking and being a pirate, you know, I want to explore. I feel like I am at my best when I'm at my worst, personally. That's so interesting. Because if you think about the narrative that we're handed about why you take the steps you do in life, it's all really geared towards stability. It's like, well, you do this so that you can create stability for yourself. And you're literally saying the opposite. You're almost always seeking to destabilize yourself in order to be better than you were before. Yeah, I mean, 100%. And But the reason why this is not like, again, going back to being an accidental rule breaker, this is not what I set out to do. You know, I, like everybody else, went to school, was told, get a nine to five, get a job, go on a holiday, you know, find a career, stick to that. The only reason it's because I uprooted myself to in search of backpacking. You know, it was a, it was effectively a holiday. That changed the course of my life. That has totally changed everything I thought, everything that I could do, everything that I thought I was capable of. I would never have had that experience if I wouldn't have been put in that situation. And so I am constantly trying to put myself in situations that I feel that I'm incapable of being successful in, quite frankly. So going back to Sam's point, you know, 100% what he said is so true. I think if you look at the trajectory of my life, it looks like it looks kind of amazing. But the truth of the matter is, is like, I'm constantly failing and flailing. I'm constantly failing and flailing. I constantly have no idea what I'm doing. And, you know, to Sam's point, Sam is really interesting, or at least how I know Sam. So I kind of set out to write this book, wasn't really super confident about doing that and read Sam's book and was just like, oh my goodness, Sam's amazing. I should get to him to read my book and see what he thinks. And, you know, it's because I'm so used to failing. 
doesn't bother me. You know, it doesn't keep me up at night. If I had contacted Sam and he thought my book was horrible or didn't want to be involved, you know, it's like water off a duck's back. That wouldn't bother me. And I think that perspective is a skill that I've grown over the course of my life and being putting myself in the situations that I have done. And it's upon reflection that I feel like more people need to do that. It's still an interesting place though, isn't it? Because I get those kind of approaches and the truth is most of my life, I'm kind of an anxious wreck. I really like that line you just said, I'm at my best when I'm at my worst. And I've come to terms with realising, and I wonder what your approach to this is, why I consistently, ever since being at school, have never been able to like move until I'm right at the point of deadline. Never been able to actually pull it out of the bag until just before it's too late. And there's something partly out of fear that I think I'm going to fuck it up. But there's also something that I know that I'm at my best when I'm in my kind of savior mode, when it's like all or nothing, when, you know, my ego can live out its narrative of like swinging in and saving the day. Because to me, like the narrative of like doing your work, homework early is like associated with negatives in my, in my mind. And that's, you know, a bunch of unhealthy, maladapted behaviors, really. But there is that narrative. And I'm not wondering whether it's healthy or not, because something I learned I think beginning of this year is the phrase negative capability. And it's from, you know, around the time of the golden age of pirates, it's Keats. So actually that's a little bit after golden age of pirates, but he, he describes negative capability when as a, when a person is capable of being in uncertainty in mystery and in doubt without any irritable reaching after fact or reason. And it's really interesting because the longer you stay in that space, the more likely you are to expand and discover these things. But once again, it goes, as you said, it goes against all the hard wiring at school. It goes against all the hard wiring of society as we grow up and against every single form of success and reward. So you mentioned your child. So how will you approach this when you're giving advice or even as you're considering being a parent, knowing that this constantly burning yourself right down to the wire, running out of money, you know, doing these difficult things. How are you going to encourage someone that you love and, and, and are hardwired to care for to take exactly those risks? Or, or, or will you want them to live a life of safety and not have the opportunity that comes with it? So this is a very good question because it's incredibly topical. My husband, and he would kill me for saying any of this, is like the exact um, opposite of me. Yeah. <laughs> um, he's, he is very safety, safety. He is very, very cautious. He is He thinks about something for like years before he takes action. And it's unbelievable how we've ended up together but we are constantly battle and we have a, a great life but we are constantly at opposite ends of this thing and so I am constantly I guess it's a bit unfair for him I I, I throw him in the deep end I I'm forced us to move to LA he's like arrived here without a job and he's just gonna have to figure it out and would I say that he's thriving because of it no but I would say I would say that at the minimum, it will change his perspective. So he's also Canadian. I forced him to move to London. He hated it, hated it, hated it, hated it for two years. And then all of a sudden loved it. And now he's got friends and he, I definitely think he considers it his second home, etc. cetera. Um, and it just takes some people longer to do it. But I know that that experience will shape the way he approaches change in the future. Going to my child, my child is, um, looks like my husband has the personality of me. It's a lot. <laughs> for sure it's a lot for a one-year-old um but i don't feel like he's gonna have that problem he is super exploratory he always wants to do different things he's he wants to get um in the thick of it all of the time and i definitely think i will encourage that because it's done i think i mean going back to why people say this so 
the reason people tell you have a nine to five, have stability, you know, have a career because it's the safe option because nobody wants to tell their child or their student to crash and burn. Nobody wants to see their people go like they're the people that they know go homeless. And so it's, and for, you know, for the majority of people, you know, that's the safer bet, but the more exciting bet and the more opportunities I think come from a place of like, going to your point, Sam, exploration of change, of like learning new things, about it being exposed to new things. And you can't do that from your nine to five, you know? There's a slight nuance where a lot of parents would encourage their kids to explore, try new things, do things, start to realize their own potential and their individuality, but not up to the point where the risk is so big or looks like it's going to be so big. Whereas I think both of you, by the sounds of it, do like to burn down to the wire. But I think what you're saying is really important and something I've learned over the last two years of being much more in that place than I've ever been and, and definitely not even there and maybe never will be. But you you become somebody, like you said about your husband, Jackie, like you become somebody else when you make those kinds of moves and giving yourself the option to not have ever, ever have that safety net. You just don't know who you're going to become because the chances are like a lot of your fears around something are potentially a projection, but also you don't know how resourceful you really are. Like, you know, if it comes to the point where you've got zero in your bank account, you are forced to do something. That is a useful and interesting predicament for almost everyone to be in at some point. You've gone further than you've ever gone before. And where does that take you? I think that point is useful. So I think it's important not to get hooked up on the whole no money thing. I mean, that 100% was me. I mean, I mean, that was my situation, though. Like I, you know, I come from like a middle class family, I went traveling, I I didn't have any money. That was just my situation. My situation now is different. You know, I sold my business, I made a ton of money. I am now very financially set. Saying that, I am still scared every day because I'm now in a city. I've just launched a new job. We don't have friends here. So there are ways that you can challenge yourself or your expectations of yourself without having to be broke. Like there are other ways, like you don't have to be poor to be able to do, you don't have to spend all your money to do that. There are different ways that you can challenge your mindset that don't have to do with money. So in the book, you give excellent advice to others. Here you are giving excellent advice to others. What is the advice you give to yourself in those moments? Like, got this piece of data from you, bang up to date from the National Science Foundation in the UK. The average person has 12 to 60,000 thoughts per day, which is quite a big spectrum. 80% of those thoughts are negative. And I love this, 95% are exactly the same repetitive thoughts as the day before. 85%, according to a survey by Leducia, of what we worry about never happens. And of the 15% of the worries that do happen, 80% of those subjects discovered they could either handle the difficulty better than they expected or the difficulty taught them a lesson worth learning. The conclusion is that 97% of our worries are baseless and result from an unfounded pessimistic perception. So that goes right to the core of what you're saying, right? 95% of our thoughts are the same as the day before. So this repetitive, negative bias comes in every single day and it stops us doing things it stops us you know this is me and I have talked about this lots of times it can sound cliche but the number one rebellion that we think we keep coming up against is the one against people's own internal limitations but it's well and good to say that to other people but when you wake up in the middle of the night and you've got to go and do these scary things yourself how do you talk yourself out of that recurring negative repetitive thought cycle and put yourself into the place where you believe you can do it So one thing I would probably say, and the stats are really interesting, I feel like I would be on the lower end of the thought scale, funny enough. I talk a lot, but 
I don't tend to overthink things and I find myself very busy in the day, whether that's right or wrong. Again, my husband is very, very different. All he does is think. And I mean, a lot of his thoughts are worried thoughts. And I don't know if I was left to my own devices and if I had more time that perhaps maybe I would be more paralyzed with worry. However, the time that I am worried, which I mean, I mean, it is often, I, I, I feel one of the things that at least now, now I am worried. One of the things that I keep going back to is that I've done this before. You know, I've moved to a city that I didn't know anybody. I've launched a business without anything. I've done this before and look how that worked out for me. So I have to have faith in my capabilities and my experience. And the truth of the matter is, what is the worst thing that's going to happen? My business is crap. We don't make friends. We move back to London. Like the truth of the matter is the worst that could happen isn't that bad. Yeah. And that completely goes to what you talk about in the the book around going on The Apprentice. I really want to bring this up because it was so interesting to read about the experience because you would have a preconception of someone who decides to go on a reality TV show. And the fact that you just did it because you were like, well, this is my year of yes, I'm going to apply, you know, glass of wine, 15 minute application with the knowledge that this would probably diminish your career opportunities, particularly in terms of going from being someone who's run and sold a business to being seen as an, as an apprentice for somebody else and that you were willing to potentially sacrifice that and go through public scrutiny and go like, well, the worst thing that happened is I'll move to India for a year and, and disappear for a bit and, and that you just did that for the pure experience. And that, to me, just sets you apart and is exactly the kind of big leap kind of thinking of a rebellious leader where you're going, I don't know where this experience is going to come in in the future. But something about your instinct was like, yeah, okay. (laughs) So I'm super competitive by nature. What I loved about The Apprentice is that you compete with people. So like, you know, I'm not very good at sports. So I don't really have anything to compete on except for like my brain or my business ability. So The Apprentice is kind of a natural thing for me to want to do. I maybe didn't give The Apprentice as much weight as I probably should have. And I kind of expected it to be a blip in the whole situation. And A, didn't recognize how many people bloody watched the show. And then B, it did kind of really hurt me not being apprentice. Honestly, from a, a lot of people thinking like, I just wanted to be on a reality TV show or not being taken seriously and all of that stuff. But the truth of the matter is, is I am not some amazing, like well-known business person. Like I did a really good job. I had a really well-known agency. People in my industry know me, but I'm not like, I'm not like a Jamal Edwards. I'm not like famous. So I didn't think that it was going to be that big of a deal. And I'm really good at my job. And so I I felt confident that coming out of that, people would still want to work with me. What I didn't anticipate is that people's perceptions of me would change. And so that has been a bit crap, but I still don't regret it. I like thoroughly enjoyed it. I never had any idea how reality TV show is made. Now I know how all reality TV shows are made, having been part of the whole experience. I loved that. One thing that I will have to say I have a really great takeaway is Claude Littner, who's like so, so nice. And we have built a really good friendship over the years as well. He's been so supportive of everything else. I think coming out of it, I think he would have helped anybody, but I think he recognized that maybe I was a little bit not over my head, but you know, was like kind of needed some help. So he made loads of introductions like following The Apprentice. He's been amazing. 
amazing, wrote an endorsement for my book as well, read it, was very kind to provide feedback. But I see it very much as like just something else random that I did. And maybe it will come in useful and maybe it will not come in useful. I don't know. I think it is disheartening for me to have worked so hard and to have a lot of people in situations like this recognize me from The Apprentice rather than all the business stuff that I've done or the books that I've written or the people that I've worked for. So that sucks because I don't think I'll ever get rid of that. I think that is now part of my CV and I didn't expect that. If you asked me to do it again in a heartbeat, I would do it again in a heartbeat. I think that kind of honesty is so refreshing and especially in this kind of like moment when we are so enamored by the spectacle and as we were saying earlier on kind of in dissonance about the reality tv has got a really interesting place to sit but on that point about honesty you know how do you phrase it in advice because i think there's a similar kind of paradox going on from a leadership perspective the notion of kind of 20th century leadership you had to set a very clear vision of where we were going you had to articulate it clearly to the team everybody had to believe in you and then you had to lay out a convincing path to get there right that was leadership as it was Now we accept the complexity of the world and that you can influence everything but possibly control nothing. Authenticity and vulnerability, empathy are closer watchwords than perhaps, you know, strength and vision were. So I I keep thinking this, and we talked, it's come up a few times. One of the most difficult challenges for a leader at the moment is to be asked about their plans for the future when the only real truth can be, I don't know. I don't know, but we're going to get the best smart people around me and we're going to try and work it out. How do you advise leaders to address that level of honesty that you've had there when looking or or trying to motivate their their team or teams when the truth can only be looking ahead for a few years? No one really can know or predict with any real security what the likely outcomes are going to be. How do you say no convincingly? How do you say no reassuringly? How do you say I don't know reassuringly? And how do you not pretend you know what to do whilst holding on to your authenticity? I can only speak from my own experience and I led a pretty big team when I was really young. And I think one of the things I would always hold my hands up and say, honestly, is, you know, I am not a great manager and I haven't had experience being a manager, but I am really passionate about what I do. And I think people believe that if there is a way, I will find it. I might not know what's going on next year. I might not know what's going on the next couple of years, but I often found, and I've switched sectors and switched industries and switched people that I've worked with. And the, the same thing keeps resonating. I find that being truthful, being energetic, I think is one thing. And I think people want to follow people that they trust, that they believe in, that they honestly feel like they're they're going somewhere and can help them support them along that journey. And I think unless you can be openly communicative about that, then you're going to lose people. And I feel that there's quite a lot of posturing sometimes, especially in an older generation who are, to your point, kind of really like nail the vision and mission. But it is also important to have a vision and a mission because as the path kind of changes or if your business changes or pivots, like nobody saw COVID coming, but if you were really strong in your vision and mission and really if the leader felt that and believed in that, you know, you A, could weather the storm, B, pivoted out of it or like C, at least you had a boss that was honest enough to be like, listen, we're not going to make it and they're not going to string you along and you have to trust that. And I would want to have an employer that I could trust in and that wouldn't just like pick up the phone the next day and be like, we've just gone under and have absolutely no sight 
that that could happen. And that happens. And that's why people don't trust people anymore. So I think for me, it's also a characteristic trait. I'm very honest. I'm very transparent. I don't have a lot of bullshit just because I don't have time for it. Um, and I think that has been, you know, one of the reasons that uh, people have found me to be an effective leader, or certainly at least why people want to believe in everything that I'm doing and help support it. I'm sure there's a famous example, a plane almost crashing and the captain had to put his hands up and say, I don't know. And from that moment, they managed to kind of figure it out through a real rambling conversation. But it was the trust in the leader in the sense of like, you're usually good. You usually are able to lead and be the person who is an expert in this situation. But when you say, I don't know, I trust you and believe you enough to then go, okay, we better do something different here. So, I mean, Alex, you bring up a really good point. So in the plane situation, I don't know exactly, but my understanding is like he would have spoke to somebody else who came up with an idea and then they worked on it together. Like another thing about this is when you are honest, honest and transparent and say, I don't know, it opens the opportunity for other people to pitch in, to collaborate, to look at other perspectives. And if you don't have that, talking about diversity and inclusion, if you can even go that far, but if you don't have that kind of I hate to say open door policy, but if you don't have that vulnerability, you were never going to take in any other information aside from your own because it's not warranted. And going back to not having a mentor, and I have not had a mentor, but I 100% have learned from the people that I work with. I feel very like I have collaborative. They have helped me do things that I wouldn't have expected to do. My leadership style has evolved because I have learned from the people that I work with. I mean, everybody is bringing something different to the table. Unless you're vulnerable to that, it's very difficult to be a leader these days. I also think it's arrogant. And speaking of, I really wanted to ask you a little bit about the risks that come with being a leader with a vision around purpose, because you talk a lot about in the book about the need for purpose. And obviously, that's a huge part of Be More Pirate. And I'm in so many conversations with people about purpose-driven business at the moment and the power and potential pitfalls of B Corp as a way of assessing whether a business is ethical and sufficiently purpose-driven. But the risk is that when you have a leader driving that vision to really get that across, and I am obviously thinking of the fact that you talk a lot about BrewDog in your book because they're a case study and obviously gone through a bit of a storm recently, recognizing that there are some elements of the business that aren't as fair and inclusive as maybe they could be. I think a lot of the discussion around that is the idea that maybe, you know, a business can be both at the same time. It can be incredibly purpose-driven. It can also be still getting things wrong all the time. I was wondering, yeah, how you think we can safeguard against that same strength of leadership that can quickly turn into ego in order to push forward a vision that is good for the planet, good for a particular cause and very purpose-driven. Yeah, how do you safeguard against that? I mean, you sort of touched on it around like like listening, being open to collaboration and, and that sort of thing. I think in BrewDog situation, there's a big like string between having a small lifestyle business where you have three employees to having a behemoth like BrewDog trying to take on, you know, your ABM buds and your Diageos. And along the way to kind of get to that stage, it's understandable that feathers will get ruffled because it's also not likely that, I mean, I can't remember, they've got like 100,000 people working for them. It's very unlikely to have 100,000 people all marching to the same beat at the same time because half those people probably have never even met James Watt. And so the communication and the, it, you know, it gets diluted down. Saying that, the truth of the matter is I actually do know somebody who works for him who, who also doesn't disagree with kind of what's going on. But I think you have to appreciate and understand like there's only so much that can be done. And if you move that quickly, 
I think it is very hard to stay and get everybody aligned. You know, even in my experience of, you know, I had four offices. I think we had like 50 people at the biggest of times. And I don't necessarily think that everybody was like loving me the whole time. And actually, I mean, I know that a whole bunch of people weren't loving me because I like, I am relentless. I am like a hard, hard boss. You know, I had 8am Monday morning meetings. This was obviously before COVID. I did not let people work flexibly. I'm like a young millennial leader as well. Like I was hard, Um, but I had big ambitions and big goals. And If you ask every single person who ever worked for me, they will tell you like it was insane, but like one of the best jobs that they ever had. But I mean, if you pinpointed them at that moment in time, they probably would have said that they hated it. They definitely wouldn't have said that they loved it because building a business like that, that quickly is not all, you know, roses. It's hard. It's hard work. And people, leaders and the people that work for them do make sacrifices to get there. So yes, I think one of the ways to try to safeguard that is listening to your people, being open to listening to your people. But at the same time, you have to balance those conversations with the growth and the direction of the company. And I think, you know, look at the Amazon walkouts, you know, all of that stuff, like these are important things and you have to kind of be aware of them. I think Google does open Fridays, What they used to do when Google was smaller is anybody who worked at Google could come to Open Fridays and say they don't like the way the bathrooms are, or they wish they could have Mondays off, or whatever the case is. And at the time, it was very, you know, revolutionary. It was an open forum. It allowed everybody from the janitor to the top of the management to communicate their feelings about working for the organization. And I know firsthand right now, they wish they never did that. So they hate it. And they have to do it because it's part of their ethos. It's part of their thing, but they wish they never did that. And there's a a good argument to make to say, you know, a lot of people are looking for a nine to five. A lot of people don't need their job to be everything for their business, but the people at the top, it is their life. It is their livelihood. And so it's very hard sometimes to mirror those emotionally through a long journey of growing a business. Would that be the way that you'd do it if you were starting another business now? Was that partly a a moment in time? I remember my agency and I remember the decisions that we made and the kind of culture that we had and some of it I rue now because it wasn't appropriate to some cultures, some ages, some life stages and we made it really competitive and, and not quite the same as yours but I look back on some of that and remember these amazing times and days and I remember I also look back on some of it and think it was pretty exclusionary and not how I do things now. So I have launched a new business and the structure of the business has enabled us to work more flexibly. But the truth of it is I am super driven as an individual. And so it would be remiss of me to not have expectations, like an actual situation that is happening. A very good friend of mine in London has two kids. She just left like a really big kind of high power job at like Spotify. She was like running a whole bunch of stuff. And I was like desperate for her to work for me and my agency. And the truth of it, she's like, well, I, I think I could probably only do three days. And I'm like, that's not going to work because I want her to be a hundred percent all in. And she's just not it because she has two kids and she's got another focus. And I think that's great. And I wish I had the personality to like be easygoing about it. But I know come Monday morning when she's not on a call with the client, that will drive me crazy. It's just not the way that I would, would want to work. So I think like good for you for amending your style. And I think I have mended my style, but I'm also, I'm very aware of like the way that I like to work and I need to feel supported 
in order to do that. And going back to all of the worry and stuff, like, I mean, I will go crazy if like people aren't on a Zoom call or like it's small things for me. And so I need to make sure that the people that are working like really love the vision, they drive the vision, like they want to wake up and it's like their being. And if it's not, that's cool. Like that's just probably not the right working environment. Yeah, well, good for you for being really honest about it. I think there are aspects of me who I want to be so inclusive and find ways of bringing people in. And I went through so much trauma of particularly that that instance, you know, women I've worked with, and I've always predominantly worked with women, returning to work, you know, huge life stages, and trying hard not to to balance the honesty of my frustration about my working circumstance and then try and be inclusive and flexible. And no, in my heart, I feel like that is the right way to be, but navigate those paths and I think I've tripped more than a few people up including myself not quite finding the right balance between my own honest experience and trying to do the right thing and when those things are misaligned it can be really really problematic it's super hard though like if you want to do great things and I mean the truth of going back to my exact friend situation I just really truly believe it's not the right fit and I think that she will find a job that you know she and also she's like not she's she's not desperate so it's not like i'm like putting people on the streets by not hiring them like she will get a different job that the fit is a better fit for her and her life stage can i ask you a related question to that and you know that goes directly to the book and it's the question i wanted to ask but that was too interesting about pace alex and i have talked about this quite a bit about the kind of challenges in the world and speed and that for quite a while there's been a, a very strong narrative around pace and it sounds like you would subscribe to that. But sometimes it feels like the pace of things is part of the problem. And where he's saying that was I think pace is necessary and it's part of the world that we've invented now and it allows for things to happen at speed and often that's good. But often it's not. And often reflection is necessary and we know reflection is necessary, but it's the last thing anybody ever puts on their to-do list and the best decisions we make rarely are the rushed ones. How do you balance that out? Knowing that deep reflection and processing is core to being a leader, but the demands and pace of the world are what they are and what's your line like where do you push back and create space and then when do you know when to go as fast as you can so i like schedule in pace or i schedule in time and so i will have in my calendar days a month where it is time to review my plan my strategy and i ensure that i just like don't do stuff like paying the electric bill, which I often do if it's like my time to think. I'm like, ah, all this stuff needs to get done. When I had Slingshot, we used to do Friday from two till four that you weren't supposed to be doing emails, that you're supposed to think about your work and the direction of your work and what you could do with clients and chat with people. And so I think that is important. I am very bad. I run a million miles an hour. It's one of the things that trips me up. I haven't had enough time to think. Even with my current business now, I'm moving too fast to put the right pieces together. And I know that and I'm very reflective of that. But I can't find the time. I mean, I could find the time, but I, you know, I also have a baby. And so I just like any spare time that I've got is with my baby. And I don't have the time that I wish I had anymore. And so I'm worse at pace now, for sure. But I think historically, I have purposely blocked stuff out in my diary. When it comes to decision making, it isn't pace like fast or slow. It's an inside outside thing. So the problem for me of pace is that when you're rushing, you are usually distracted by external things. So it's like, I better get this done and this done. When I'm rushing, I always feel like I'm delivering things for people and tasks as opposed to being able to listen to myself and my instincts, which is what I think I need for good decision-making. But I can get those you know, instinctive decision-making quite quickly if I'm in the right place. 
It doesn't have to be really slow. It can be quite instantaneous. I don't know if you wanted to tell us a little bit more about Sandbox Studios, the newest Jack Boss business. This is going to be my big business. I've been like struggling to figure out what I was going to do post Slingshot. So Sandbox Studios is an evolution of what I used to do. So it's a sponsorship collaboration agency. So we work with everybody from brands to sports stars, to musicians, to actors, to kind of create elevated brand partnerships that look at long-term equity deals. So rather than doing campaigns and stuff, we like put new products together. So think we're creating the next Beats, the next Kylie Cosmetics, the next Fabletics, the next Casamigos. But the interesting and exciting thing is our agency does that. And then I've got a fund that invests into it. So I'm combining capital with all of the agency marketing skill set that I've had for over 20 years. So it's like slingshot, but on acid because we've got money (laughs) to back stuff that we're doing. And so it's based in LA. We've got some clients in London as well. So it's kind of LA, London, but kind of very much LA. I'm based here. So that's what I'm doing now. And what are you looking for for, for Sandbox? What's more important to you? The kind of the, the, the new ideas to then put brands and partnerships around them, or you're looking for the brands and then you're creating ideas for them? Both. So we work with brands and we create the talent strategy. So whether that's working with micro influencers, working with a lister to be the face, spinning out and creating a new like IP. And then we also work with talent. So helping talent identify like the white space in terms of like what products would be a good fit, how you would approach it, the manufacturing and like rolling that. And then the fund invests in the collaboration. Lovely model. Thank you. What was the driving force behind that? Just to take your kind of previous knowledge skill set and kind of just amp it up the truth of the matter is when i sold slingshot i was really lucky to sell it i did not expect it to get as big as it did i hadn't seen daylight in years like i worked hard and so when i had a couple offers to sell and i basically i was really lucky i negotiated an amazing deal that i got a lot of cash and didn't have an earn out so left and i decided i would never have an agency again (laughs) because i was just like the the model isn't there like your the amount of hours is like the time like it's not if you have a product or a tech software or whatever like the model is always one-on-one you can only get as big as the people to do the work it's ridiculous so i said i would never do an agency um and then i took all my money and i decided i would be an angel investor and be like super cool and like sit on boards of like cool products and i did that and very quickly realized that is like not for me i am found myself sitting around boards of very cool businesses but i mean you know not to be rude, but all of them happen to be like middle-aged white men who uh, all came from finance, from VC, who uh, quite frankly, probably didn't appreciate me being there or my ideas or my marketing ideas and just like kind of really didn't care for me being there. And then I was like, so, I mean, like I am just a, a, a lot of a person. And so I'd be sitting there being like, you know, well, have you asked your customers? They're like, well, we haven't spoken to our customers. It's like, you're a B2C company. You kind of need to. And they're like, well, how would we do that? I'm like, okay, cool. I'll show up on Tuesday. I'll write the script. I'll sit with your junior team. And so five days a week, I was working for all of these companies for, and not even for free. I had paid to have the luxury of having like junior jobs. And then also being like, kind of not told off, but certainly not at all respected amongst a board table. And it was just awful. And I was just like, this is so much worse. This was after the year of yes. And and I launched a wine brand because I thought that was a good idea. And I mean, that was, I mean, it's done really well, but wasn't big enough. And so I was just toying with the thing. And 
over three years, because I sold my business in 2016, left in 2017, it's given me enough space to be like, I'm really good at an agency. I loved having an agency. I love the people. I love the ideas, the startup, all of that. I should start an agency, but I want to do it bigger than Slingshot because I was getting bored with Slingshot. And then a friend of mine mentioned, you know, well, how are you going to get the money to launch all these great products? And I said, well, I'll work with VCs. And they said, well, why would you work with the VC when you could be the VC? And I was like, that is way smarter. <laughs> so, and it ticks all my boxes. So I've never worked in venture capital. Uh, I didn't know what Sequoia Capital was until six months ago. Like I'm really jumping into the deep end, even the lingo, the people, I don't know anything. And I love that because it gives me the challenge that I need while still having the agency portion of something that I, I feel pretty confident in delivering. So it, that's kind of how it came about. Just as a final parting shot, is there anything that you could share with our audience, maybe from your book? There's so much interesting wisdom in there around rule breaking and what the new rule should be. I love that you've laid it out around, here's the old rule, here's the new rule. And we'll, of course, encourage people to read it. But is there any one thing that you would sort of offer to people as like a rebellious leader, a pirate? We obviously have our own ideas about first steps and that sort of thing. But what would you say to people? It's such a big ask, but I just think so many people spend so much time thinking about it, you know, like, I think I want to launch a business, I think I want to quit my job. And they just sit and they just think and think and they think that they've got a great idea. If the last year has taught anybody anything, like, you know, you can't really predict what's ahead. And, you know, now is the time. So stop thinking and start doing something. And even if that is starting side hustle, even if that is, blogging about an idea it doesn't have to be you have to quit your job and start like designing shoes you know people look at it so binary like it's so black and white but actually there are ways that you can start making small steps towards the thing that you want to do or the action that you want to take and just taking that small action then you'll realize it's not so scary and ideally hopefully it'll something positive will happen and that hopefully gives you the confidence to take the next step but i mean people talk about it like taking the lead like start small do small things often Thank you so much, Jackie. It's been a pleasure. And thank you very much indeed, Jackie. And a special shout out to Mr. Fast and all the other people out there who are a little slower to acclimatise to change, who are the majority amongst us. And we're grateful for, for all of that, that aspect of our dynamics as well. All the Mr. Fasts out there. Thanks so much for having me, guys. It was fun. Thank you for tuning in today. Our hope with this podcast is that each time it might inspire a few more people to realise that the way things are is not the way they have to be, and that maybe it's time for you to step up and take that leap into the unknown. If you like what you heard, then please consider subscribing to the podcast on the platform of your choice. Even better, leave us a review, let us know who you'd like us to interview next, or of course just tell us how you're being more pirate. We are first and foremost a community, so we'd really love to hear from you. Go to at Be More Pirate on Instagram or Twitter or visit bemorepirate.com. See you next time.